Come on in. Thank you. Um, I see uh, you all had to come and see what your friends were up to because the Instagram ad, uh, algorithms were uh, showing you a bunch of ads and people that weren't even your friends. No? No? The joke flopped. Well, there's difficult times in being a pastor, and humor is a difficult topic for me. I never tend to figure it out, but there's good times and difficult times, and there's times of peace in your life, and there's hard times in your life. There are times of ease and times of war. I just... I understand that. And so Psalms 20 is looking at a difficult time in the passage of, that we're looking at today. It's known as a royal wartime benediction. And I'm calling this sermon Battlefield Benediction. Battlefield Benediction. So I think it's fitting that we open up a word of prayer as we jump into this message today. God, I thank you for our Psalms 20. I just enjoyed looking at it, studying it, digging into it, Lord. I just, uh, I just we just enjoy you. We enjoy the word of God. I ask that you just really help Help us to really wrestle with the text today. Help us to do business with you today. I pray that you would encourage, instruct, convict, challenge, exhort. I pray that you would let the Word of God convict the people of God in the way that only the Word of God can. I pray that I would get out of the way. I pray that we would get out of the way and we'd really do business with you as individuals, Lord, as people. We would really wrestle with this passage today and see what you're calling us to do as a response of being here in this room and spending 30 minutes looking at this passage. I said, just really do what only your word of God can do. Instruct and change lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Psalms 20 is written by David. So who is David? David is the second king of Israel. And basically, David made a career of high-stakes situations. Let's say David was Clutch. His middle name was Clutch. He just always came through as needed. Uh, specific high-stakes situations we're talking about are foreign military war into different you know, military campaigns. Seems like every single summer he led massive yearly campaigns into enemy territory to secure the borders and the terrain of the nation of Israel. And David was the goat of military leaders and was known in and out of Israel for his military might, his battlefield leadership, and his victories. He was a genius general and he led many biblical battles. He was a gutsy leader, a savvy leader, and a courageous leader. It said about Saul, he killed his predecessor, killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. David was a dangerous man to be reckoned with. And this is one of the oldest Davidic Psalms that he wrote. And so what is a benediction? So that's who wrote it. What is a benediction? A benediction is a prayer blessing over a people. It's a practice we adapted about nine, adopted about nine months ago as a church. It's just a, the idea is that a picture of benevolent father figure praying for God's blessing over a group of believers as we go and follow and respond to the word that was preached to us. That's the, the concept behind a benediction. You see benedictions all throughout the Bible. Today, Psalm 20 is a benediction before David and the armies of Israel go into battle. And it is an amazing and inspiring psalm. So what's it about? Psalms 20 and Psalm 21 could have easily been together at one time. There's themes of thanksgiving, intercession, and pleading for a nation, asking God to intervene on their behalf. And it's speculated that it's prayed on the eve or the morning of a very important critical battle in Israel's history, which I'll get to later. These first few verses, these first five verses, it really talks about a voices of people praying for God to move on their behalf. It's the we, you'll see, throughout the first five verses. We this, we that, we this, we that. The multitude of the nation is praying a prayer. And then you'll see it shifts later in the passage to I, 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 and that's David talking. So there's two main people in this passage we're, we're going to read through. So Psalm 20, verse 1, it says this, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. 
they're focusing their attention to David and the army. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. So this is the nation's their cry of their heart that God would lead and protect their soldiers and their king as they go into battle to represent them where they cannot be at this time. The day of trouble. The day of trouble you see in verse 1. Don't forget us in the day of trouble. See, you have a God that is available, not just on the dark days, the hard days, the lonely days, but he's available on the good days too. He's there on the wedding days and the funeral days. He's there on every day of your life. But this is focused on a very dark, troubling day. On the day of trouble, don't forget us, Lord. Don't forget our people on the day of trouble. Protect us. You see that in verse 1. Protection in hard times, don't forget us. When you feel forgotten, protect us. I'm going to move quickly because I have more I want to say later in this chapter. Verse 2, send help. Not just send help, but send support for your people. We could relate to all these cries of this nation. Praying. We can relate to all verse 1 and verse 2. Very naturally. You can pray that today. For your day today. And then we get to verse 3. Remember is referring to a portion of the sacrificial offering, a special sacrifice that David would have engaged in. This reminds us of the importance of faith placed in a sacrifice. We talk about sacrifice at this church. We talk about generosity at this church, talking about being generous in your time, your talent, and your treasure. Let's just look at the concept of time, of you sacrificing your time to serve a church. What does that look like? Well, we should model what David did and do it in faith. Make a sacrifice in faith. Just an example. We just sat through worship, and Lincoln did a great job. You walk out of a church experience, and you're like, that, that, I just, he seemed authentic. He seemed genuine. He led us. He cared about us. He cared about the Lord. He's, he's, his heart was warmed and stirred as he walked in, and it was seemed like an authentic experience. Your authenticity meter goes off when you think someone's unauthentic, unauthentic. Right? You're like, that pastor, I don't believe anything he's saying. He doesn't seem authentic. <laughs> you, you, you get what I'm saying? This is like a skill. You learn how to be authentic as you consume what's authentic and what's not authentic. As we serve as a church going forward into the next month, which is going to be some peak seasons for us as a church, we should model David and we should authentically give our sacrifices of our time. Hand out a donut as authentically as you can. Tell someone where to park with that vest as authentically as you can. <laughs> Greet someone as authentically as you can. You get what I'm saying? Be authentic and genuine. When you're teaching Sunday school, those little kids upstairs will know if you don't want to be there and they can read it. I mean, I'm not saying nothing, but I do have some kids and we get and have lunch sometimes, Sunday afternoons if I get back at normal time and we talk, how's Sunday school? And they've said some hysterical things <laughs> and I thought, it's okay. Let's keep going, you know. But I'm saying like they, they read exactly what's happening. If you authentically are sacrificing of your time, it's, it's very, it's very obvious. We're not fooling no one. So as you come to church and you're sacrificing time, just in that one concept of your sacrifice we make every week as a church, let's be authentic as we give, as we give God time, as we serve in faith. Heaven is watching and men are watching and God wants to reward things that are done in faith, not in the flesh. So let's give of our time this next few months really generously with of sacrificial faith, that God will redeem that time. David made sacrifices, but we know that Jesus made the perfect sacrifice for the souls of mankind. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, and he died to buy us back, our souls to redeem us. His life was given. 
He sacrificed his life and the burnt offering of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus for the judgment that we deserved on him on the cross. Why? For you and for me, to ransom us and redeem us so that we might be with him in heaven. Jesus didn't just go through the motions. He was all in on his sacrifice. David was all in on his sacrifice. There's death, danger, and destruction. The life of a nation and their loved ones are on the balance here on the scales of war. And they're asking God would remember the sacrifices of those people as they went into battle. Moving on, verse 4. May he grant you your heart's desires and fulfill all your plans. May he grant you your heart's desires and fulfill all your plans. Again, the nation of Israel, praying this on behalf of their military and their leader. The desire of David, their king, was divine help. David wanted to defend the people of God and the nation that he's in charge, trusted of leading for the enemies. Isn't that our desire that God's help, his hand would be on leading us and blessing us and all of our preferences and our wants and our, our desires and our dreams and our opinions about life, God would just be behind us unanimously blessing everything that we want today and everything we want tomorrow. That's, that's what we want. That's not what we need. And that's definitely not what we need as people. We obviously want God's help in hard times, but I think we miss something if we miss this whole concept. I mean, God, we look to God to bring our, we need to look to God to bring our desires in line with his desire. We need to look to God to bring our desires in line with his desire. David's desires were right. He had a mandate. He was anointed and appointed the leader of Israel, and he was given a mandate to do what he's doing. We may or may not have a mandate to do what we desire and our plans are. Verse 4 talks about your desires and your plans. And those may or may not be under the holy authority, lordship of Christ. They might be very selfish. They might be evil. They might be very immature. They might be very foolish. They might be godly. They might be mature. They might be appropriate. But our desires and our plans might not be right. David, the king of Israel, had a desire and a plan that was right. Jesus, the king of kings, had a desire too. And you can see his desires and how he wrestled with his desires in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his betrayal and his crucifixion the following few days. Luke 22, verses 42, Jesus talking. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Jesus models a yielding of his desires, a yielding of his plans, a releasing and a trust, not trusting in what his preferences are, but a trusting in God's plan for his life. Why did Jesus do this? Why is verse 4 in Psalm 20, and why did Jesus mirror this in the New Testament? He did it for you, for me, to model what it looks like to live a yielded life when it comes to your desires and a yielded life when it comes to your plans. Because think about this, an unyielded church that is consumed with its desires and its plans is no threat to Satan. An unyielded Christian that is consumed with its desires and its plan is no threat to Satan. An unyielded Christian is consumed with their desires and their plans. And that Christian's due for a humbling from God. It is better to join God in his plan for your life, his desires for your life, than move ahead with your plan and your desires for your life. I mean, if you've ever hung out with older Christians, you'll hear things like, if God wills it, or Lord willing, or God willing, you'll hear these, like, you know, like these clauses they'll drop in conversations, and you're like, just, we're meeting tomorrow for coffee. What's the big conversation? Like, well, Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow at 9 a.m. And you're like, 
you know something I don't know? <laughs> What's going on? I mean, tomorrow 9 a.m. at Scooters. Great, I'll be there. But it's, there's just a, a, a culture among people who have walked the Lord long, that have a sweetheart, that they have an open-handed posture to their plans, their desires. Because they've seen a thing or two, and they realize that desires and plans of mankind don't always happen. Especially young men and women don't always happen. It is a very holy and appropriate spot to have an open-handed yieldedness that Jesus models, that David modeled, when it comes to our desires and our plans. Especially when you think about praying for what we desire and what we plan for. But isn't that how the Christian walk works? We get when we give. We grow when we let go. And we move when we stop. Too many Christians today have big plans and bold desires that have little to nothing to do with God. So a quick analogy. I got invited to a four-man scramble, and I told the guy, I'm like, I'm bad. And he's like, that's okay. I'm like, no, really, I'm not just being polite golf etiquette. I'm actually bad. And he's like, it's okay. I'm like, I could be fun, but I'm not going to be good. Like, don't expect me to make the shots. He's like, that's fine. And then one of his clients dropped out. So he said, hey, Mike, I, I need another guy. I'm like, okay, I got a fun guy who's free on Monday. I don't have a, I don't have a good guy unless I have to ask God to take it. Anyways, so me and Ryan Levy were at a golf course uh, an 18-hole, uh, four-man scramble, and these two brothers were killing it. It was really a two-man scramble. But anyways, me and Ryan Lovey were just hanging out, cracking jokes, talking the whole day. Um, I've only gone golfing, I think, twice <laughs> this year. So it's not like I'm... Anyways, so we, we missed, and we we're going to our first ball. My ball was over here, and his ball was over there, and they were way ahead, and so we had time to get our balls. And so I got my ball, and you, know, you lean out the cart as he's driving, and I grab the ball. And then I'm like, all right, your turn, Ryan. And he's going to get his ball, and he's driving, and he's leaning out to grab his ball. And I'm riding beside him, and I, I grab the wheel, and I twist a little bit more. <laughs> We're at a golf course. It's a golf cart. What's going to happen? So Ryan's like, hey, now, stop it. He's like, no touch the rest of the day. And so that, I'm like, ha, ha, ha. He had a loop around, get his ball. But that's how we are as Christians. We're driving our little life and our big plans and our bold desires we have in our life. We're going along, going along. And then God reaches over to nudge the wheel a little bit. And you're like, stop it. Stay in your lane. Sunday morning from 9, 9, 10 to 11, 15, that's when you get to talk. But the rest of the week, zip it. And you should maybe move to the back here. You know, some of you got, got God locked up in the trunk or something. And you're like, I'm sick. But God and you have different desires at times. God and you have different plans at times. And those are not always in conflict with each other. They're not always in conflict. They're always in conflict, especially if younger Christians. We've got to have an open-handed posture, a yielding of our desires and our plans to God. One Bible teacher who I respect, he paraphrased this concept about a critique of a generation of Christians that is coming up through the ranks right now, that are leaving their homes. They, he said, their real God is the God of options. They want to keep those options open. Am I going to study abroad here? Am I going to take this internship there? Am I going to date this person? Am I going to work here? Am I going to do that? Am I going to do this? They really want to keep their options open. They really hold on to tightly their desires and their plans. Wow, Mike's camping here a lot. I know. I'll move on. But we see a Jesus with a very yielded desires and plans to God, his Father. We see David with a very yielded desires and plans in verse 4. And that seems to be how healthy things operate, a softening and a yielding to God's sovereign hand. Look at me at verse 5. May... We shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. So banners are used by the Israelites as a standard of warfare, kind of like a rally cry, and you can sing in Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 4. And you see also like in Numbers 2-2, where they would tell tribes to symbol under each banner. 
kind of like each city in America has their own banner of an NFL team that they all rally around behind. That's a stretch, I know. But it's, it's the same thing. If you, even the Egyptians, another power, military power at this day, they would have different banners for different deities, different gods that they would worship. But it's like, we worship cats, and we worship the Nile, and we worship the sun god, and they would rally underneath those banners. But the idea is when a banner is held high, it's a sign of direction and victory for that army as they go into battle. So let's read. Verse 5 again, may we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. For the, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. There's a Bible commentary, John Trapp, who said this in light of the concept of banners in Psalm 20, verse 5. He says this, our flag of defiance to the enemy or our token of triumph to God's glory who hath given us the victory. Think about this. Any victory you have over the world, the flesh, and the devil, any good thing that occurred in the gospel or the word of God changing your life or the blessing of Christian community, I mean, anything that is occurring in your life, it's not like something you can go like this about. You're not like patting yourself on the back. I saved myself. I redeemed mankind. I mean, no. That's pathetic. Our triumph is in God's work. Our glory, our boast is in the victory that God has made. Our defiance is because Jesus was defiant, we could be defiant. Does that make sense? Our banner is in Christ. It's not in self. It's not in each other. It's in Christ. This should be a stirring psalm. Life and death hang in the balance. I know we're like 6,000 years removed from when this was written, and there is not rowdy warriors on the other side of the valley, and we're praying before our soldiers, our sons and the husbands go off into battle. I mean, this is like a stirring life and death hang in the balance. The nation's in danger. We're praying desperately. For the first five verses, what do we see? We see a, a cry of the Lord's favor. The idea is that David is about to go to war and to battle, and so are their loved ones. We see a, a, this battle is where danger and difficulty and death are hanging in the balance. We see prayer for protection, provision, favor, and support for our guys. We see a yielding of our plan and our desires to God's master plan. It shouldn't be too hard to see that, but it shouldn't be too hard to also see that this foreshadows a greater battle with one greater than David. With that, this prayer points to Jesus when he fights with the greatest battle ever waged for the souls of mankind, where life and death of everyone hang in the balance, of eternal life and eternal death. We see David responding in verse 6. We're shifting now. Verse 6, we see David responding. He uses the words I, because he's speaking in first person. David talking, he says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed, he will answer him from his holy heavens with the saving might of his right hand. And then verse 7, I love. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Isn't that good? Amen? Isn't that good? Amen? Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So David knew that people were prone to trusting in the wrong things. So like... Let's just kind of get some paradigm here. Uh, raise your hand if you've seen some of these movies. Raise your hand if you've seen Lord of the Rings. Raise your, keep it up, keep it up. Raise your hand if you've seen Braveheart. Raise your hand, keep it up, keep it up. You can raise two hands, that's fine. Raise your hand if you've seen Gladiator. Okay, so like warfare, all right, that's good, that's enough. That's enough audience participation. Warfare at that time was pretty much not different than it was in those movies. Does that make sense? It's hand-to-hand -hand combat. And a horse and a chariot was an elite fighting unit at that time that would cause a lot of mayhem for actual soldiers on the ground, with boots on the ground. 
So the, the most sophisticated weapons of that day were chariots and horsemen. Knights on horses, soldiers on horses were a threat, and chariots were an incredibly dangerous thing. And so in biblical battles, you can read about the kind of armament and the kind of like siege things they have in our church's library. There's this biblical battle book, which is awesome. And it got loaned out to some teenagers, and it's not finding its way back yet. And uh, I'll look for you parents afterwards and try to get it back. But there's some really fun books, but they're not like fancy. Get what I'm saying? Compared to those movies, it gives you a paradigm. Uh, historians think that possibly this battle was, this Psalm 20 relates to David when he and his soldiers fought with 700 chariots from the Assyrians and 40,000 horsemen. So David's about to go and fight 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen. And he says, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What I love about David, he is so practical. He's so practical in his walk. And that's probably why many of you love David and his writings, because he's just so practical. He trusts in God. David trusts in God. Why? Because it works. That's why he trusts in God. Some trust in the most advanced technology of their day, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. When you find yourself in a can't-lose situation, you can't lose the opportunity to pray. When God's people pray, the prayers work, and it makes it a can't-lose situation. Prayer is work, and prayer works, Christian. And we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Verse 8, they collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. These verses represent the anticipated result of an already achieved future victory that is to be realized by faith, by Christ. And how incredibly easy it is for us to trust in our own ability. That just seems to happen. When things go well and things grow and do well, heads grow and do well. And people tend to boast in themselves. They tend to trust in themselves. Look at verse 9. O oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. So what is Psalm 20 about? See, every king was anointed, and then they were appointed for the office of being a king. And David is referring to himself as king, but it also understood that a perfect and eternal anointed and appointed one would come and reign and rule on the throne of the world and the ultimate throne, the hearts of mankind. And that's Jesus Christ. We don't have King David in our church, and we do, but we do have many men and women who are courageously leading out. And as a pastor, it's so encouraging to hear when people are praying for me. Genuinely encouraged. We say, I'm praying for you. I mean, that's a big blessing in my life. I know Shane could relate that's encouraging. Ben could relate that's encouraging. Dan's encouraged by that. I'd ask that. I, I purposefully try to get done quick so I can kind of bring this home for us and be very practical. Does that make sense? So the rest of our time, I want to make this passage very practical to our next 90 days as a church. I'd ask that you would pray for courage of the pastorate in the pulpit. I ask that you would be praying for courage in the pastorate and the pulpit. And those are kind of two different things, but they're the same thing. You need courage for both. I was on the phone with a young man who's not a leader in our church who's dealing with a very complicated, messy, painful, hard situation. And he said, is this what you do all week? And I said, well, not every day, but most weeks. <laughs> yes, this is part of the gig of being a pastor. It's not always roses and rainbows. <laughs> it's kind of hard and sad and difficult and very heavy and painful at times. But I ask that you pray for courage at the pastor and the pulpit, because we as a church are about to go into that high stakes couple months where there's a ton of new people coming to church. Not by design or desire. I wish they kind of slowly came all year. But instead, there's a surge of people that tend to come the next few months. And it's a difficult job. We pray for courage in the pastor and the pulpit. 
If it were easy, more men would desire to do it. But pray that we would preach the word at all costs. And church, know this. Actually having a pastor who actually preaches to you non-squishy sermons when the Bible's very firm, non-murky sermons when the Bible's very clear, that's going to cost more and more. It's going to cost him more and more, and it's going to cost the church more and more to have a pastor who actually preaches through the Bible, the painful, unculturally suave, cool parts of the Bible. There's a temptation and pressure to compromise and be not filled with courage. And I love the men we have, and I'm confident there's more solid, godly men coming up through the ranks that have that courageous, stout heart, but pray for courage in the pastor in the pulpit. I ask that you pray for our campus. There's seven people on staff at Christian Challenge, our local college group. Alex preached here and he did an excellent job three or four weeks ago, and Zane's up next, next week. Um, they pray for courage of our leaders of Christian Challenge, and their student leaders too. They're about to go to war at UNL for the souls of men and women, and many huge decisions are made for Christ, and that'll impact the rest of their life the next couple of weeks of school. Pray for courage for our campus directors and our campus staff. It's nonstop activity for the first two months of school. And you remember that if you're a student. Pray. When I was the campus director, I'd pray for wisdom of wolves and uh, pray for good-souled students and the wisdom to know which is which because there's a lot of interesting things that happen the first couple of weeks of school. You may or may not know, but if you've ever led in a Christian organization on a non-Christian campus, it's a very intense Draining couple months. So pray for courage in all of our staff at Christian Challenge. They're our college group team. They, they need our prayers. Pray for our community group leaders. I mean, like I said earlier, last year I think we had 80-some new people walk into our church that no one knew, that we got to know, and I think 60-some of them became members at our church this following last year. Pray for courage and wisdom for our community group leaders as we look forward to another fall. These next couple months will be very busy at Sower. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, we're going into spiritual battle the next couple months as a church. Psalms 20 is very timely for us as a congregation to stop and pause and think about where we are and what's happening the next few months. These next few months, we're hoping to launch two to three, God willing, two to three brand new community groups to help absorb and find community for people that are coming to our church. We have 20-some community group leaders that are leading, some of them for many years, some of them for this is their first fall. Pray for courage and wisdom for them as they shift from remobilizing their Christians from the summer relational time to the fall, it's go time. And they go from a monthly or bi-monthly meeting to a weekly meeting. Pray for wisdom and courage. Pray for our 30-some discipleship group leaders that are leading three to five men or women to really dig into people's lives. Ministry is messy. Pray for them. Pray for all our ministry team leaders that have been running ministry teams over the summer. And now we're going to go to maximum capacity in the next couple of months. Pray for wisdom and discernment as we attempt to serve people and lead them to Christ. Why, Mike? Why does all this matter? Why are you going on and on? You have four minutes. Why are you going on and on about prayer, Mike? Why are you talking about this? All this matters for the sake of serving Christ to help lead people in a deeper walk with God. But this is a spiritual work, and it rages on the spiritual battlefield of prayer. We've got to be laboring in prayer before we labor in person, church. We have to be laboring in prayer before we actually labor in person. This is a spiritual reality of a healthy church and an unhealthy church. I mean, we have some really sharp leaders and some razor-sharp plans, and, but we trust in our fancy plans and our leaders? Good. Over here? Do I get any no's over here? All right, one, two, three. We're going to say one, two, three, no. Okay, one, two, three. No. There we go. We trust in 
the name of the Lord our God. Amen, right? Not chariots, not horses, not search engine optimization or social media or branding or a parking lot. God bless that parking lot, but not a parking lot. We trust in the name of the Lord our? There we go. Yes. That's my celebration. <laughs> yes. So we need you. So I'm going to try to be painfully practical like David. What is needed? You. We need you to be praying for your church. So if you're a member at this church, First service might have cleaned us out, folks. We'll order more of these. But like, this is our membership thing. And you pray for people that don't know Jesus on this side and some prayer requests that Lord's laying heart on this side of the card. That's why Chloe spread it all out so it's easy to read. And this side is some objectives we're praying for as a church. And what's unique is God answers these prayers. God answers your prayers as a church. And I think it's super encouraging to stop and think about what God has done. We have prayed for things in the past as a church. To buy this building we could not afford a long time ago in a galaxy far away, God made that happen. I mean, a new roof. As soon as we closed on this building, that roof went out. And we had to pray that God would help us, you know, sell an organ and be able to pay off that new roof. Expanding our parking, doubling our parking, expanding our property, new staff, missionaries, church planters, and the missionaries. God answered those prayers, people, with Derek and, and Brock. Emerge, growth, two services. Two services was a joke for years. And then God answered your prayer. Do you get what I'm saying? So when you pray, things happen, church. A healthy church is a praying church. You could be praying for these things. That's what we're looking at as a church going forward. Intercession. Prayers of a healthy church for the needs and the wants and the desires and the plans of that church is a very holy and healthy thing for a church. I have a gift here. I spilled water on it in the first service accidentally. I have a gift here for you. If you want one of these, you can have one of these as a gift from us to you as a church. But this is the nine marks of a healthy church. They have all these different marks, and this is what does healthy prayer look like in a church. So if you'd like one, come and grab one after church. Is that okay? Come and get one after church. But the healthy prayer in a healthy church looks different than it does in other churches. Because prayer is so powerful. But think, when God's people pray, God answers those prayers. Many of you, you have your alarms go off at 10.02 in the morning or 9.38 because you would be reminded about that passage in Luke or in Mark? Matthew? I forget right now. But there's two different passages where he talks about pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers into the field because the job of reaching Lincoln and reaching the nations is too big for any of us to accomplish. We're praying that God will bring in more laborers and raise up more laborers through our church to do the work of ministry because we need more people doing more, not fewer people doing more. We need more people to do more, not few people doing more. So at 10.02, my alarm goes off, and I'm reminded to pray for more laborers. And, you know, God's been answering that prayer. And our, our leadership team is like doubled and a half since we started praying that prayer as a church. I mean, God answers your prayers, Christians. You realize prayer is an underutilized weapon we don't wield as a Christian or as a church. But God answers your prayers. Where can I learn to pray? I'm leading the witness. Where can I learn to pray? Well, I'm sure there's many people that would show you. Your community groups pray. Here's a photo that John Tesley took of a men's prayer meeting we have Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. You're like, ah, Mike, the waters don't rise in my soul at 6 a.m. Like, That's fine. You know, you, we can find out other times. But that's Tuesday at 6 a.m., Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. is open. Thursday is open. Friday is open. I'm here most weeks, most days at 6 a.m. My meetings start at 7. I'm willing to lead other prayer meetings. There's a Sunday night prayer group that meets at, I think, Pioneer Park. I can get you connected with that lady who's leading those groups. We have two groups, and they're kind of full. I think this is intimate enough where we can pray and not have you show up and 
50 people pray and you sit around for an hour and fall asleep. This is intimate enough where you have to engage. We've been working through the book of Psalms as a group of men for a year and a half, and it's been great. But we're willing to launch other times. Does that make sense? Um, you just eat, pull out your phones, pull out your phones and email hello at soberchurch.com and say, I'm in. And then we could coordinate when and where and whatnot. But we can get you connected to some prayer groups. And we're, I'm sure we'll be launching more in the coming months and years. But a healthy church that is given over to praying strategically for our plans and our desires and praying specifically for the things that occur is a healthy thing. So you have a gift, you have a book, you have an opportunity. We have stories of what God has done. But I'm, I'm just so grateful for the prayer request that God has answered from this leadership team. I remember a guy named Brian used to come up and give me huge bear hugs before church when he knew I was kind of scared looking uh, when I was preaching and he'd just pray with me. Uh, and now another lady, is, he stopped, he went and got married, moved to a different city, which is great. That's what happens here in Lincoln in our area of town. Uh, but uh, another lady came up and started doing that the last couple of months. And it's been really encouraging to my heart when people pray. I'm sure you have testimonies of God answering prayers in your community group. I just think it's amazing when God's people pray. And I think we have an opportunity now, looking at Psalm 20, to realize that this is an opportunity for us to really get serious from the summer months looking into the fall. This Psalm 20 has a genuine messianic echoes of looking forward to a future king of Israel. The nation of Israel prayed over their king going into battle, but the church prays and look forward to Jesus, the triumphant Messiah that we now look back to. What do you see in this passage? You see three things. You see Jesus in verse 3. Jesus offered the perfect sacrifice that is always remembered and always accepted by God. David, maybe. Jesus, yes. Verse 5. Jesus is the one who, whose every prayer and every request is answered. David, maybe. Jesus, yes. And verse 6. Jesus is the ultimate aton anointed one for all time. David had victory because his people were praying. Jesus had victory because he prayed. You can have victory when you learn how to pray. And Psalm 20 models a yielding desires in our plans through our prayer life. Amen, church? Let's pray. Bow your heads. God, thank you for uh, these men and women. I pray that you just really teach us. Take us on a journey of what it means to being a praying Christian and being in a praying church. I pray that we would just really yield our plans and our desires to you for this day and every day of our lives. I just pray that you just encourage us, Lord, as we follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.